HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're examining the true cost of convenience when it comes to when, where, and how we eat. Dark stores enable workers to eat without any kind of thought to how they're getting their food or how it might have come to be. DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft in the past have pledged to spend $90 million to try to exempt themselves from the law. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I think there's going to be significant regulatory pushback on driverless trucks. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I celebrate stories of extraordinary women, people who've persevered and found success on their own terms. Today, I'm in San Inez Valley to talk to the most prominent and respected Native American female winemaker in the whole country, Tara Gomez. She makes her Quita wines with grapes grown on the land purchased by her tribe, the Band of Santa Inez Valley Chumash. Tara also makes wines with her Catalan-born wife, Maria Taribo. Tara, I'm so happy you could join me on Speaking Broadly. Thank you. Thank you for coming and uh, being able to talk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear about how you came to wine, because it's not the first thing that I think of with Native American tribes people and yet your tribe is very much a part of the winemaking that you do how did you first fall in love with wine well actually it was the love of science um, growing up I had my first uh, Fisher Price microscope set when I was four years old that I actually have in um, our other tasting room that Mary and I both share and uh from there it grew. It was just through the love of science. But I think there's a lot of people who like chemistry who do not end up making wine. And you went on winery tours with your parents when you were growing up. Did they have a love of wine? They did. They loved um, going on weekends, going up and down the Central Coast, 
exploring um, the different tasting rooms and yeah we used to go on the wine tours and just as a child to see the large stainless steel vats but most importantly in one instance I passed by the lab and I actually saw them in their white lab coats and doing titrations and um, I think that was my instant connection um, which is just the sight. <laughs> they wear lab coats. <laughs> yes. I wanted to go home and get one <laughs> so I could wear it when uh, I played around with my chemistry set. And where were you living at the time? Were you living? Santa Maria, uh, so Santa Maria, California, which is about maybe 20 minutes from here. Um, our reservation is here or in San Inez, and we actually covered, um, we were coastal Indians, so from Paso Robles all the way um, down south to Malibu. I read about that because there were 22,000 Shumash back in the 1700s, I think. Um, so from our band um, of Shumash, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different tribal Shumash that do not belong to our reservation. So for our reservation, uh, there's currently 120 voting tribal members. And I'm a descendant of my father from this tribe. So there's um, numerous of, of us descendants that um, are... Uh, what you call the voting members um, of our tribe. And does every person who is a member of the tribe get a vote? Yes, of the 120 remaining members now, yes. And the majority of them are a lot of elders. Um, when we purchased the property back in 2010, we had 140 members, and, and now we're down to, uh, i say, about 120 members. And what does that feel like, watching the numbers get smaller? Um, it's, it's a little saddening, but it's, it's the circle of life. And a lot of them, you know, as I mentioned, being our our tribal elders. And so um, just really trying to spend um, as much time that we can with them and and hear all the stories and and learn from that so that we could carry on um, those traditions for the years to come. Um, I know that a lot of the stories were lost and the language was lost, but you're also reclaiming the language because there's a professor teaching the Samala, is that... Yes, Somala. And so, yes, we have our own dictionary. And uh, years ago, when, when the dictionary first came out, um, you know, I was taking classes myself and learning the Shumash language. Um. And the name of your winery, which is Kita, mm-hmm. is an oak leaf. Yes, so Kita means uh, our valley oak in our native Somala language. And uh, we wanted to find that connection, that connection to the land. Um, and it was just the, there's a lot of valley oak leaves um, all over the vineyard. And so we felt that that was the perfect name for us. And, and not only that, you know, um, our ancestors once used to, you know, gather acorns and um, you used to eat that. And so, um, so that was an important part of um, the ancestors as well. So you ended up getting a scholarship to go to enology school from the tribe. Yes. Was that difficult to convince them? No. um, Actually, my father was on the um, tribal council, and he strongly believed in education. That's why... You know, he moved off the reservation, and, and we lived in Santa Maria, so we could get the best education we could possibly get. So yeah, with the financial support of our tribe, I was able to go off to college and get my degree and get my education. And so when I graduated, I mean, I, I came back and did my internship at Fest Parker, and then right upon graduation, they hired me to come back and be the knowledgeist there. 
So at that time, it was, it was like maybe about 15, 20,000 case production. Uh, so I, I was there for maybe about two years, and then I left to go up north um, to Paso Robles because I just wanted to move out. And kind of like, the, you know, coming back from college, it's like I moved back home, and <laughs> I'm just like not used to that because I'm more independent. And so... Was that hard? Because most people don't move away from their the, their families, I imagine. I ne- yeah, you're right. Like, I never left home. And, and then now to leave home and to kind of learn to be a little bit independent, that, that took a couple of years for me. But I was really, really involved in my studies because I felt like I had to be because I had a learning disability. And, and it took me a little longer to, to get my education. And I had to study harder. Um, but... What was the disability that you were working with? Just attention deficit um, disorder. Just uh, I, I, I have trouble focusing and um, concentration, but I've always struggled with that my whole life. Trying to take exams was always challenging for me. I'd always get confused, and I was always the last person to turn in my exam because it's like it took me forever. I reread it, read it, read it over and over again, and and yeah. So so as much as I love chemistry and everything, there were some instances where I had to repeat a class or two because um, you know it was just it was just difficult for me to comprehend. Did you find coping mechanisms for that? Because I think that you know. No, <laughs> I kept it all. I kept it all to myself, and I kept it in and, until you know it came to the point where like I almost like just like kind of like exploded in the fact that like oh maybe this isn't for me, and and you know I I called my parents and I was just like struggling with everything because I wasn't doing as good as I wanted to to do, and that's why I switched kind of switched a little bit into my American Indian studies to. Um, kind of like bring me back to some sort of balance and um, and then I was I was able to uh, I guess cope with it better and my parents were just like you know don't do this for for us you're doing it for yourself and so when when you went back home and you had this knowledge Mm -hmm. how did you bring what you learned back to the tribe if you did yeah so so yes I I mean like I graduated and um, and when I graduated, like I said, I was at Fest Parker, and then I moved off to J. Lor, um, and then I was there for almost nine years, and then that's when I left, and I went to Europe for two years, and and I, I worked up in the Pyrenees Mountains. And so when I came back in 2010, um, that was when the tribe was in negotiations uh, with Fest Parker um, on purchasing the land. I was wondering if the the Camp Four property, which was part of Fess Parker's land and the tribe buying it was because of you because you no, had worked uh, the reality of it was that um, the tribe purchased the property for to be able to build housing um, on the property it's a 1400 acre parcel 1400 acre parcel of land of in which 256 acres is dedicated to the vineyard um, so for the tribe, you know, vineyard came second nature, but the, the main reason was to be able to build housing. So the vineyard was a bonus. <laughs> vineyard was a bonus, and, um, and then that's where I kind of came into play, and I was just like, okay, you know, like, we're in wine country. <laughs> like, we have a vineyard. Like, why not want to get into the wine industry? So it, it wasn't easy at all trying to convince the tribe. Um, Tell me about that. It took a lot of, um, it, it took a lot 
of really trying to prove myself to, to my tribe um, that, that this is the direction uh, that we need to go because you know we, we have the vineyard and um, we're not just gonna sell grapes. Um, we need to be able to make wine off of it. So like, like in June, they finally agreed that, okay, like we'll, get, we'll let you try it out. Pick three varietals. You only can only play with three tons. So like figure it out and, and make some wine and we'll taste it and we'll see. And so it, it was, it was about like, I had to prove myself. I think you had less credibility because you were I think, from the tribe. I think a lot of that, yes, because I think they saw in their eyes, they saw me as this little child, as this little kid. And were you ever afraid like, oh my goodness, I've told them I can do this. Right. Well, I'm of course I was because, because 2010 vintage, here it comes, 2010 vintage, one of the hardest vintages um here in Santa Barbara County is that right and and I came into I came into it in 2010 and so it was just like but but for me I wasn't worried about that at all because I just came from the Pyrenees Mountains of Spain I've I've witnessed the extreme temperatures of there and and I knew exactly what I needed to do and so did you set up everything I mean you had to set up because the grapes were planted so you were using the, the grapes but then you had so I came in like yeah late in the season and here I started making all these changes out in the vineyard um, this is what I want done but but I was the thing was was that I was out there with the workers working hand in hand with them it's not that I was out there giving orders I was there working with them and teaching them how I wanted my sections you know trained and the work I wanted done out in the vineyard and then so I think that's where a lot of the respect came into play between me and the workers was that um, you know I didn't want them to see me per se as their boss. I wanted to be equal with them. Um, so yeah, I was calling, making the calls, and I just remember um, just being questioned a lot. Like, are you sure you want to pick? Um, are you sure you want to pick this early? And um, and yeah, I, I I knew in my gut and in my heart that this is this was the right time that I needed to pick. You said that you got asked a lot of questions. Some of it, of course, was because it was first time for everybody. But do you think any of it had to do with the fact that you were a woman in this oh, yeah. business? Of course, yes. Um, and that, and I remember having this conversation with my dad and I was like, dad, like they're questioning me. Like, like they're supposed to be working for me. Like, why are they questioning me? Questioning me? And uh, my dad just said, like, well, if you feel it in your gut, like this is what you need to do, then do it and believe in yourself. Um, yeah, no, I don't get questions, ask questions anymore. <laughs> like, are you sure you want to pick? You know, it's, it's like, okay, Tara, after they tasted the wines, you know, they, they saw my style and, um, well, let's talk about your style. Cause it's, it seems that you have a love for old world yes, and, uh, with some new technique and you're so beautifully trained both in California, but then traveling throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. So you learned like at the heart of wine countries where people have been making wine for hundreds if not thousands of years how did you choose to go to Europe to extend your education well for me I think it all started back when I was 16 years old because uh, we had a foreign exchange brother from Spain um, who lived with us uh, and when he graduated um, him my brother myself and my two cousins uh, we went to Spain so I was only 16 years old my I don't even, can't even believe my parents let us go but so you we, guys went on your own we no went parents. on our own my first time on a plane 
and um, yeah, we flew to Europe. We flew to Spain. It was Marbella, the south of Spain, and um, we stayed there with him and his family um, for I think it was two or three weeks. From that point on, I really fell in love with um, just the culture, the of of you know having wine, you know, with your with your meals, and um, it was something like yeah, I saw my parents do that, but to see the whole family sitting there and and. Um, you know, sharing, um, sharing, you know, the, the food and the wine and pairing it. And, and it was something really special. Um, and so when I was at JLOR, I remember saving, like I wouldn't take any vacations. I, w- I would just save it all till like the end after harvest. And, and then I'd go off for like a month and, and just go exploring. And, um, and then that's also too, how I met Mireya, um, was working at JLOR and, and we had a lot of interns, and Medea was one of the interns. And um, you know, we started traveling together, and and we would always plan all these trips. Um, you know, I would go visit her; she would come visit me. And um, and anyways, that's that's how our relationship grew. And you know, just traveling together, and and um, you know, visiting all the different wineries. And and she always we go back and we talk about it. And she always says like, "You had this itinerary, and we had to follow it." And and we would try, I would try and cram all these wineries um, all into one day. And it was just like I'm just really immensed myself into wanting to learn um, the history, the culture, the old world winemaking technique. So I read that you each year pick a varietal to learn more about, and then do you produce that varietal? Or I do. So there are varietals that I do produce. Um, so this last one was Northern Rhone. Um, and Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I've, we've always wanted to go, and um, yeah, it was so fascinating. Um, I love cool climate Syrahs. Um, and, and that's where our second label, where, where our label comes into play, Coming to Dreams, is um, our focus is here in Santa Rita Hills um, in cool climates for us. So when did you guys get married? We got married in 2014. Have, have you ever seen the movie 90 Day Fiance? Because no, because that's, that's, that's what it was. How, that's how I felt. Because um, here we were planning this wedding, which would be in the spring of the following year. Um, so we went through and we did all our paperwork and everything. And um, we had planned that it that they like my attorneys had said that oh, it's going to take you know it's going to take a long time and that um, just expect it in the spring of the following year. Well. She got, she got the phone call for her interview, um, and that was in July. And so she had a few weeks to kind of like pack up and move. To pack up from Barcelona yeah, to come. From, from where she was living and working. She's a winemaker in Spain, getting ready to go right into harvest. And she had to tell her boss that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm leaving now. Like, she was in shock. I was in shock. And I'm like, wait, 90 days. I'm trying to count 90 days. <laughs> because I'm like, I'm just about ready to start harvest. Like, what do you mean you're coming? Like, I'm not ready for, for all of this. Like, that must be so, so-, it all, so it all worked out, though. I, I found um, a beautiful place out in the mountains and uh, a place where both of our families could could stay and get to know each other because they've never met <laughs> and so we still suffer the language barrier though because you know her family um i mean they speak spanish and catalan um but mainly catalan because <laughs> um they're really strong about their catalan language and and so um yeah it was it was definitely a language barrier but and what about cultural because you have you know spanish 
and Native American. What was that like? <laughs> well, it's a, it is kind of interesting um, because, yeah, I, I ended up falling in love with um, someone from another country, let alone from Spain. Um, but sometimes you just can't help who you fall in love with, and, and it happens. And so um, my parents didn't see it like that at all, though, um, that, you know, see it as a, as a flaw for her being Spanish or anything like that. Um, you know, they, they, they're there to support me and, and for um, the love that I have um, towards Medea. And so, um, you know, they, they were my support. So the intersection of the, the culture and the winemaking, part is this notion of, of balance, but also respect for nature and not, over, not too much intervention. Um, I'd love to hear the ways in which the philosophy that you grew up with has influenced the winemaking that you do. Well, I mean, for me, like, yeah, balance is, is everything. Finding, you know, being in balance, um, you know, with yourself and your surroundings. And, and in winemaking, it's kind of like the same thing, finding that balance um, between, you know, the, um, the alcohol, the acidity, the structure, the flavor uh, of the wines. And in grape growing, you know, it's, it's the soil, it's the climate, um, it's, it's the geographical region, you know, f- trying to find that balance. Does the tribe have any influence on the wine that you make? Um, I think um, I think I'm teaching them a lot, and so from that, um, they'll tell me like, "Yes, I like it like this," or you know. But a lot of that is through me teaching them, um, and so uh, also to um, you know. Uh, they like to hear from the consumers as well and, and what the consumers have to say ab- about it because that is the end product, is the consumer. And, um, you know, uh, if they're happy, um, if the consumers are happy, they're happy. <laughs> the tribe is happy. So. I know that the tribe has a casino. Mm-hmm. Do they sell the wine at the casino? They do, yes. They do? Yes. Um, so in terms of distribution, does... <laughs> we do sell the wine to the casino, but um, one thing you have to understand is that um, we're an en- so even though we're an enterprise within an enterprise, meaning that we're under the same umbrella, um, we're, tr- we're all treated differently. So, so we all have our, um, our own budgets that we have to follow and everything. So I'm treated just like anybody else on the outside. Um, maybe I get a little bit of leeway in, but yeah, not much. <laughs> Why is that? That seems like yeah, they would love your wine. Well, they do love the wine, but uh, yeah, I'm still working on that. <laughs> because it would be such a great way to, I mean, they could probably take all your 2,000 cases. Yes. Um, sometimes, though, the easiest things um, are the hardest. <laughs> and that would be one of them. Yeah, somewhat. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and... We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, 
the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, specially recorded in Santa Ynez Valley in California. Today I'm talking to Tara Gomez, who's an extraordinary winemaker, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the wines that you make under the Kita label. People love the Grenache Rosé. I I think that's like our number one seller. I don't know if it's just like a rosé kick that everybody's, it's like a... a, um, it's like a bridal that you could drink like year round, a wine that you could drink year round. And so, um, but yes, um, our, our Grenache Rosé is made specifically um, for the Rosé program, meaning that we pick specifically for the Rosé. And you pair it with some surprising things. What are some of those what's, things? What's so interesting about Rosé, though, is that there's there's so many options to, to pair with it. I mean, you could even pair it with steaks or you could pair it with salads or you could pair it with fish. And, and at least with our rosé, because it's just so fresh, um, it's bright, it has some really nice acidity and um, it just makes it like an, an easy wine to be able to pair with any sort of dish. But I think you paired it with donuts. So we paired it with donuts, we paired it with popcorn. <laughs> so, so yeah. Is that to prove the point that you can actually pair it with almost anything? <laughs> right. Well, we just, um, our tasting room manager, Brittany, she, I, I love having her on the team because she gets really creative in terms of creating um, these food and wine pairings and comes up with these really cool and different ideas. And uh, I'm, at first, I'm just like, um, donuts? Like, I'm not really sure. But but there's this donut company in, in Bealton that we actually worked with. So we, we had a tasting with them, and, and then they created specific donuts that paired with, with our wine, yeah. And how do you make that happen? Because it seems like, well, I guess you make it not too sugary, right? What's, yeah. what's the name well, of the... Well, the sugar and, and just the, um, the flavor profiles that, that they add into the donuts, um, uh, the toppings, um, it's, yeah, it's kind of, they get really creative with that. And, and it actually, it went really well. And, so and we had a lot of people that came and really enjoyed um having the, the donut and, and wine pairing and they're asking for it again. So. Has having the tasting room made a huge difference in sales and people understanding yes, your story? Yes, absolutely, because then you're able to tell the story. I mean, like we weren't open to the public before, um, so we didn't have that DTC um, side of it, direct to consumer, um, so we were selling wholesale. And um, so we weren't really able to benefit as much and, and to be able just to share the wine and tell the story. And, and I think that's what's so important because there's so much to be told. Were there any Native Americans you could look up to and say, that's me? As a winemaker, there were no other Native American winemakers that I could talk to. I don't know, I to this day, I don't know if there's any out there yet. I mean, I know that there are tribes that got into the wine industry, but they brought on um, consultants from Napa um, to make the wine for them. And I, so I think that's what separates our tribe from the rest of the tribes is that we have one from within, from within our own tribe. And was that hard? Just like, there's no one who looks like me, who comes from my background, who's doing this. Like, did that stop you in your tracks at all? No, I think it actually made me want to work that much harder. It did the opposite because just growing up a minority all through life, I've, I've dealt with that. And so it was nothing new. And once some of the consumers connect me 
to the tribe, I get a lot of negativity. And so that it's yeah. not on what's in the bottle, it's it's what I'm connected to. And once they realize that I'm from the tribe or, or that I'm an enterprise of the tribe, um, I don't want anything to do with me. Why is that? That surprises me. Um, I just think that it's it's always been there, um, at least for our tribe um, here in the community. There are some supporters, but there are a lot of people that don't support us. Um, and so it's just growing up, it's something that we were always faced with. And so does it surprise me? No. But at least being, being here in Lompoc, I'm able to express myself and I'm able to have them taste the wine and, and let them see for themselves without the prejudgment because not everybody knows that, you know, until we tell the story that, yeah, we're from the tribe and this and, you know. <laughs> and what did that feel like growing up, feeling like people had these negative impressions of you before you actually opened your mouth? Um, at first, yeah, it was it was hurtful and, and it took some time. I mean... I, I went to a private school and there wasn't many minorities there. And so, you know, I was always faced with that, but um, it, it didn't stop me at all. I mean, it, it, it made me um, persevere and, and continue to move forward. Like, I don't frown on that. It's, it's their loss, not mine, um, for um, the way they feel. Um, I don't let it get to me. Um, it, it's just, it's, I don't need that negativity. Um, and I, just do do me and and continue to you know just share the story but it is interesting to make the choice to share the story because some people well they don't want to hear it they you know they don't want to hear it it's not I'm not going to be rude back to them I'm I'm just just, thank you for your time you know and um, hopefully one day you can taste the wine because it's actually really good (laughs) or something you know um, you know it doesn't put me um, you know two negativities don't make a right so um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so I just I just need to be positive in that sense um, and and that's 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 how I move forward that's how I find my balance as well it's just like I don't need to bring on any of that and and frown on that because that's not going to get me anywhere I'm not going to change their mind um, if, if they, although you they, might you might one bottle at a time yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying it's 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 what's in the bottle just taste the wine <laughs> On each episode of Speaking Broadly, I ask my guest to give a shout-out broadly to a woman they admire who they want more people to know about. Who would you like to give a shout-out broadly to? (laughs) So there's um, Timory Loray, who used to work with me, and I used to mentor her. Uh, She graduated from college, and then I took her under my wings and brought her in. And um, a couple years ago, she left Kita and, and moved on to Folded Hills. She's growing and she's learning and um, she's the general manager of Folded Hills so I'm so proud of um, seeing her grow um, and blossom. Um, She's really dedicated into everything that she does and everything she puts her mind to she accomplishes so it's so great to see. I'm always interested in finding a product that is better than the hype. I would have to say uh, I'm a Yeti girl um, in the sense that um, I, I love the water bottles. I, I, I think I have every single type and size of bottles that they offer and the backpack and the, the ice chests um, and when I go fishing. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at Akita Wines Yeti bottle. I mean, you really, it is your truth. <laughs> You're surrounded everywhere by Yetis. My coffee mugs, wine, gla- or wine um, holders. Uh, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're Yeti. 
Well, with that, thank you so much, Tara, for joining me on Speaking Broadly. I loved hearing your story. And thank all of you listeners for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and listen to more podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And if you have suggestions or recommendations, I'd love to hear from you. I'm also open to like happy criticism, but please send along your thoughts and ideas and have a really great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.